Good morning, Cornerstone. Uh, for those of y'all that don't know me, I'm John, one of the pastors here. Uh, once again, so glad to be here. If it's your first time with us, like Richard said, uh, in spite of the fact that we are going to ask you to leave quicker than we would, we love you and we want you to stay around. So uh, we are glad to have you. Members, right afterwards, uh, we'll be right next door upstairs. So those are the few things I want to call your attention to. And I would ask as we prepare to read God's word, um, that y'all would stand with me. Um, normally, uh, we have the words up here on the screen and we are going to have them on the screen this week and that's fine uh, uh, enough. Uh, but for today, especially if you don't have a Bible in your hands, there should be one right in front of you. We'll be on page 530. Uh, Matthew chapter 5 will be on page 530. Uh, There's just lots of things that we're going to draw your attention to. Uh, Back here in the text, we want you to follow along with us. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1, and it reads like this. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Listen, be glad and rejoice, for your reward in heaven is great. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. Or better, y'all. That's a plural you. Y'all are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to make sense of these words. Father, I pray that you would give us a grand vision for the life that you've promised to bring to this broken world that we're in. And I pray that that vision would be something so compelling that we would follow you towards those ends, Father. Help us to be reminded that as we come to you, we can be honest with our need because you're a good father that wants to provide for us. I pray that you would help us to get rid of any self-righteousness or self 
sufficiency that would blind us from experiencing the good truths that you have for us today. We ask that you would help us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Why don't you take a seat? If you don't know what you have, you're going to misuse what you've got. If you don't know what you have, you're going to misuse what you've got. Your behavior is never going to rise above your vision. Behavior never rises above your vision. Here's what I mean by that. If I were to come to you and I were to say, You, whoever you are, I want you to go and put sand in bags for 12 hours straight, and I'm not going to pay you a dime to do so, but I need you to do it with no breaks, ready, go. Who's raising their hand to go and do that? But if I came to you and said, A hurricane, worse than Katrina, is on its way to your hometown. Everything and everyone you've ever loved is going to be destroyed unless we can get somebody to fill these bags with sand so that they can absorb the water. It's going to be hard work, but I I need you to fill bags with sand. How many of you would do it? I'm asking you to do the same thing. What changed? Vision. Your behavior will never rise above your vision. Here's the thing about vision, though. Your vision is supposed to shape how you live life in the present. Your vision is supposed to shape your present. But instead... Um, Our present often shapes our vision. Here's what I mean by that. Here's something that you and I all have. We don't just have life, but we have lives, lives where things go wrong, troubled lives. We all have burdens, present burdens. We all have things in our life right now that are bad that we want to reverse And when we think about reversing the burdens in our present, do you know what we almost always start with? Behavior. Here's what you need to do. Do this, do this, do this. So many of y'all, when you think about Christianity, you think about behavior. Here's what you need to do. Do this, do this. And more important than the bad that you experience in life is how you interpret the experiences that you have in life. Here's how this plays out. If your vision for Christianity is shaped by presently how your life is going, there's going to be something that takes place in your life that will have you form a negative vision of God and or Christianity. God, I'm doing all of what you called me to do. I'm behaving in the right way, but I'm disadvantaged. I'm taking these L's. God, I did all that you wanted me to do in my marriage, but I'm divorced. I went where you called me to go, and now I'm being deported. 
I forgave when you called me to forgave, and now I'm being taken advantage of. My present is frustrating, so the vision I have of Christianity or who you are is a bad one. Where our vision leads, our behavior follows. If you don't see any light at the end of the tunnel, don't be surprised when you run out of gas as you're trying to move forward. Your vision controls you because it determines how you interpret reality. It determines how you define things that are good and bad. It determines how you define things if they're obstacles or opportunities. If there's something that's going wrong in your life right now, a burden that you feel that you just can't move past, it may be because you just don't know the right thing to do, or it may be because you have the wrong vision. We all have burdens, but we all want the same thing out of life, don't we? We all want to prosper. We all want blessings. We all want the present burdens that we have right now to go away and to be transformed into something else. If that's you, then I've got good news for you here today. The Lord Jesus is concerned with the exact same thing for your life. We started off and we read Psalm 1, right? You go through the book of Psalms and it starts off. The words there are blessed is the man or oh, how happy is the man. And that first psalm is meant for you to interpret the rest of psalms. So the person that takes their anger, their pain, their frustration, their sadness, their hopes and dreams, the person that takes all of those things to God, what Psalms 1 says is they'll be blessed. So Jesus, look here at Matthew 5. Verses 1 and 2, we've kind of worked through his life, but verse 1 says this. uh, When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them. Here's where we are in the book. Jesus has come on the scene. Matthew lays out this chronicle of his life saying he's the promised son of God that's going to lead this world into God's kingdom. Or he's going to try to lead this world into blessings. So as Jesus comes, his aim is that people would follow him. He's trying to get these disciples. And sometimes that word discipleship is lost on us because we hear that term. We're familiar with the Christianese, but we don't unpack it. To be a disciple of somebody is to follow somebody. The most important thing about following somebody is where they're headed. Jesus is trying to get a group of people to follow him because he's trying to lead them into God's kingdom or this place of blessing. Matthew 4, 23 to 25, what we get is Christ gets on the scene and what he does is he takes people that are broken and he heals them. Gives sight to the blind, heals those that are sick and says, hey, this is a foretaste of the kingdom that I'm trying to lead folks to. He takes those burdens and he leads folks to blessings, and Matthew 5 is going to be the start of what's called the Sermon on the Mount. 
So it is one of the most famous sermons preached, and it is about Jesus leading people towards blessing, human flourishing. Make no mistakes, God is going to talk about behavior here. So in the weeks to come, he's going to talk about how you should relate to God, how you should deal with your anger, how you should deal with the desire that you have for sex, how you should deal with the poor, how you should deal with your enemies. But before he's going to talk about that behavior, he's going to start with this vision. Not of what life will look like one day when we die and go to meet with God, but what he's saying is that the kingdom of God, these blessings have broken into reality. 5-1, here's the place. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Here's what takes place. The reason why it brings up that he sits on this mountain is that back in this day with this culture, they would have seen this mountain as a place where God was going to reveal something. So it's not just the words from some man, but in the same way Moses went up on a mountain and came down with God's will, Jesus now comes in and says, yo, I'm going to go on top of this mountain so that you all see I'm getting ready to speak on behalf of God. Then as he sits down, he's taking the posture of a rabbi of the day so people would know, all right, he sat down, he's about to get it in. You know, it's like when like my, my, my mom could cook really well. Richard can cook real well. And I know when Richard goes to his house, Rich gets in the kitchen and starts to roll them sleeves up. I know Rich is about to get it in. So they sit down and they say, all right, Jesus is about to get it in. And here's the most important thing. As he gets up and talks about this pathway that leads to blessing, he's going to talk to his disciples, these men that have left everything to come with him, but he's also going to do it on a mountain and he's going to talk to the crowds, people that aren't quite sure where they stand with Jesus. So he's going to talk in a place much like this. There's some of us in here that would call ourselves Christians and we've pledged our lives to follow Jesus. And then there's some here that have said, I don't think I'd call myself a Christian. I'm not quite sure. But I'm willing to give you about 45 minutes, John, on a Sunday to talk to me about him. And so I just want you to know, like, you're welcome. Not like you're welcome, like you are welcome here. We're glad that you're here. So as we talk about this vision of Christianity and experiencing God's blessings, here's what I want to start off with. And I just want to give you the main point of what I feel like Jesus is going to get at here, this vision of Christianity, right? As we hear about the goodness of all of what God has, we ask ourselves, all right, what do I need to really enjoy God's blessings? And here's what I want you to know. If you want to enjoy God's blessings, the kingdom that God says he's going to bring here, if you really want to enjoy God's blessings, all you need is need. 
if you want to enjoy God's blessings, hear this. All you need is need. There's not a list of requirements or things that you have to do or behaviors that you have to meet. That's not what this is. This is saying the people that get it are people that just say, God, I need this. They aren't the people that try. They're the people that cry. Look here, Matthew 3, um, 5, verses 3 and 10. Look here, verse 3 and 10. Look, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. The reason why that phrase is repeated at the end is it's this thing called an inclusio, or it's like a picture frame that's going to help you see. All right, this is the point that he's trying to get at. The kingdom of God, the blessings that God give, are never earned. They're given to people who have this posture of being poor in spirit, persecuted. What do people that are poor in spirit have to offer? Nothing. But yet they get everything. And what through this list is this whole list is this reversal of sorts. When I was a kid, we used to play this game. Um, and it was called Opposite Day. Did y'all play that game when y'all was kids, right? It was where these kids, on a whim, could just declare, today is Opposite Day. And everything that I tell you, don't believe what I tell you. I actually mean it's opposite. I know that when I say I hate you, you may tend to feel like I hate you, but it's not what it seems. Right, And so what you had to do as a kid was say, all right, they've said it's opposite day. So what I have to do is I have to reorient my perspective. Things are going to seem one way, but that's not really the case. As Jesus comes and proclaims this kingdom, look at this list. Look at who he says is in. Look at what their lives are marked by. And and just look at the front end of all of these verses. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the humble. Humility is a trait that we think is admirable until we have to practice it. Then we find out that it's really hard. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Look, blessed are those who are merciful. Again, we all think that that's great. Until what you find out is that showing mercy is saying, I'm not going to give somebody what they deserve. They were ugly to me. They were rude. They were frustrating. They took advantage of me. They insulted me. And you're telling me that I can't give them back what they deserve. It's a virtue until we have to practice it. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Do you know what this thing has in common? None of us want those first lines of each verse. All of those things feel like burdens. Those things are the source of our frustrations, aren't they? But then look at the back half of each verse. The kingdom of God is it. What blessing? Verse 4, they are 
comforted. They'll inherit the earth. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. They will be shown mercy. They will see God. They will be called sons of God. None of us want the first one, but all of us want that back half. And what Jesus is trying to say is that there is a correlation in between the two, but it's not the one that you and I think. That these burdens aren't this curse, but they're actually this precursor. They're step one. So what Jesus is trying to do here um, is he's basically trying to defrost the windows, problems, and your burdens. If it's a cold day, you step outside, sit in the car, and you know any other day, I put the car in drive and I look straight ahead at my windshield, and I drive, any other day you can make your way there. But if the windows are frosted up and you try to drive, what are you going to do? Crash. And you may step back and say, well, wait, I've done what I've done every other day of the week. I look at my windshield and I go, but here's the problem. You were never meant to just look at your windshield. You're supposed to look through your windshield. And if your windshield is cloudy, you need somebody to defrost it so that you can look through and see where you're going. That's the same way that it is with our problems, with our burdens. If you just look at them, you're going to crash. They're meant to be transparent. They're meant to be looked through. And so what Jesus is saying is he's helping us see that these burdens, these frustrations, these things that we have, they're meant to be transparent. They are not a curse. They're actually a precursor to God's blessings. Here's, here's, here's how that plays out. I have a friend who uh, went overseas uh, years ago with his family and got to a place where he uh, felt himself incredibly low. And in his low point, he just went out, was overcome with such despair that he felt like he had to steal from somebody just to, just to be okay. So he steals, he gets caught, he gets incarcerated, put in jail, overseas, not knowing what's going to take place to him or his family. As he's sitting there in jail, he gets his hands on a Bible. As he gets his hand on a Bible, he reads it from cover to cover. And a book in the past that had been about behaviors and actions and things that he was supposed to do, now his trouble gave him new eyes. And do you know what he sees? He sees from cover to cover, not a story of heroes that he should be like, but people who did the wrong thing, who should have had more burdens stacked upon their more burdens, stacked upon their more burdens. But instead, in each of these stories, the one consistent character, God comes and intervenes and brings these people that are poor in spirit, people that are spiritually bankrupt, people that have nothing to offer, brings them not to a place of condemnation, but to blessing. And the Lord used that 
to help this brother turn his life around. And what he saw that these negative circumstances brought about this positive change. When we understand that the kingdom of God is provided, not to people who earn it, but people who come and acknowledge their need, what it does is it rearranges or it changes how you and I determine and define both burdens and blessings. Because we see that our present condition, where we are, how we feel right now, is not permanent. It doesn't have to be, nor does our present burden have to determine where you and I end up. Yeah, this is why verse 11 is going to go on and say this. Look, you were blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. In verse 12, it's this action. Look, be glad and rejoice. Be glad and rejoice. So people that are weighed down with burdens, what he's saying is, You can be glad and rejoice. Why? Because the burdens that you feel right now aren't a curse. They're a precursor. They're just trying to get you to a place where you acknowledge your desperate need for God. So I can look back now and say one of the greatest blessings in my life was 17 years ago being in Nigeria, face down in the dirt with my mom, my dad, and my four brothers and sisters with guns pointed at the back of our head with guys saying, if anybody looks up, we're going to shoot y'all. They took all of our passports, our plane tickets, and our money because we were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. But as an 18-year-old preparing to go off and live life for my own, do you know what it did? It brought me to a place where I saw everything that I worked my whole life for was powerless. I was at a place where I was desperate and needed God to intervene. And nothing that I worked my whole life for could step in. And so I saw how powerless that it was. And more than that, somebody who spent my whole life trying to earn my way up to God. Being faced with death, one of the things that you clearly do is all pretense comes off and you really start to evaluate your life. Did all the good that I do really outweigh the bad? Is that even a good standard? Is that the right one? Is God at the end of the time going to weigh these things on a scale? And how much is all of my good deeds worth? And I just got to a place where I said, man, if God really weighs the bad stuff that I did and the good that I did didn't override it, I'm in trouble. And I felt myself as one spiritually bankrupt. And I cried out to the Lord. And what I found was not condemnation. What I found was mercy.
one of the most important things about this text right here, listen, is not just that these two are related, right? That these burdens are going to one day lead to a blessing. One of the most important things about this text right here is the second most repeated word. So the first most repeated word that you're going to see here in this text is what? Blessed. You're blessed. You're blessed. You're blessed. And we've already said it's reversed. It doesn't come to who we think that it does. You know the second most repeated word that you see here? Will. So it doesn't just say blessed are the poor in spirit. They have a chance at the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, they have a chance at being comforted. It's saying, blessed are people who find themselves here. Why? Because they will. They will. It is a promise and a guarantee, but it's a thing that biblical authors call the divine passive. And what that means is that the person who's speaking this is saying that they're going to be the one responsible to bring it to pass. It's like my daughter, when I'm trying to get her uh, to say hi to somebody, and she's two right now, so her favorite word is no. What I say is, if you say hi, then you'll get to have the phone, right? She loves to watch YouTube kids, and I found at this stage, if you can't get kids to do what you want, Bribery is always a great tool. And so what I say is you will. Now, she doesn't sit back and and say, I wonder who's going to do it. Nor does she sit back and question, is it really going to happen? She knows me to be a man of my word, and she knows that the speaker is going to be the one responsible for it to take place. And so here's the best news of this text. The best news of this text It's not just that God is saying that these fates are going to be reversed. What he's saying is that it's a promise. He's the one that's going to be responsible for it. That everybody that finds themselves poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt, that comes to him with those needs, what he's saying is that's all that you need. Let me see if I can help us kind of bring this home. The best news of this text is also the key to the problems that you and I face. Jesus is trying to give this vision of God's promise that will shape our present behavior. And so what he's saying is, no, how you live is always based on a promise. The key is, are the promises you're believing True promises or false promises? Listen, everything that you do, your present is propped up on a set of promises. How you live your life, the house of your life is built on a foundation of promises Somebody or something has assured you that if you live how they live, that if you do 
what should take place, your burdens can be reversed into blessings. Hear this. What is revenge other than you living on a promise? A promise that your feelings of vulnerability and being exposed and weak can somehow be wiped away if you reassert your power and give somebody else what they gave you. What else is pride or boasting or name dropping? Do you ever find yourself in conversations where you name drop? What's that other than a promise that the irrelevance or the inadequacy that you feel right now can somehow be completely wiped away if you just showed people who you know or how well the person that you know likes you? What is the pursuit of sex? outside of this lifelong commitment to somebody else other than an action that's based on a promise that somehow this feeling of loneliness or unworthiness can somehow be fulfilled if you were to just do that one thing. Our behaviors are guided by some vision, by some hope that we have that our burdens, the things that we face right now, our fates can be reversed. And what we see is that's true in all of life, fiction or nonfiction. The most iconic fiction stories are all about people's fates being reversed. Cinderella, Aladdin, people that are poor make their way to the palace. Nonfiction, the thing that draws us in, we, we think about, right, Forbes naming Jay-Z a billionaire. That's great, but what they include there is he went from the projects to the palace. How? By his resolve, his hard work, his determination, and all of these things. And we see these pictures, and they shape how it is that you and I live. It's those promises of what could be that shape how we live and we spend our lives trying to follow those patterns. But what we discount is in non-fiction and those works where people's lives, those rags to riches story, what's often left out is that somebody's writing that story. Reality TV has producers that edit out the boring parts or the really, really bad parts. So even if you get that story, it's not the whole story. And so even if you follow the blueprint, you may make it there. But you know that more often than not, it's an anomaly, and not most folks do. Here's the thing about fiction, though. Do you know what you find in every rags-to-riches story? Fiction often has this way, right, of once you let go of the constraints of reality, then you can kind of write these stories 
that are unbelievable. And so in fiction, it's not through Aladdin's hard work that he gets to the palace. He has this genie. It's not through Cinderella's hard work that she gets. It's this fairy godmother. As you read all these great fiction stories that folks are drawn into, where they're free to write the story how they want to, and somehow they let go of the constraints of reality, then they say, wait a minute, it must not be about hard work. What if there was somebody or something that was in control of things, and they were actually on our side? What could this story be like? Well, what you could do is you could take this nobody and make them somebody. And so fiction has this, but then people step back and say, well, that's just fiction. I mean, it's not like it would happen in the real world. I mean, in the real world, you kind of get what you give. In the real world, it's only one in a million that finds themselves broken down and really get to this place of blessing. If Christianity is really true and Jesus comes and what he's saying is, no, no, listen, I'm not just trying to proclaim a way to God that anybody would think of, right? Do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that. And if your good outweighs the bad, God will love you. He's saying, I'm here to proclaim this otherworldly kingdom. And so in the truth of the gospel of Christianity, what we get is this nonfiction story with these otherworldly hopes. What we get is God actually just telling us this is the way to go, but embodying these truths. So it's not just Jesus uttering this promise. He's saying, look, I'm going to live my life in such a way that y'all are going to see that it really turns out well. Jesus embodies just the good. Every other rags to riches story in real life highlights the good things that are done. And do you know what it leaves out? Lots of the bad things. And then you come and you read this story of Christianity and you read about this man who claims to be God. But he has a humility. So as he talks about blessed are the poor in spirit, he's not saying it from his throne. What the Bible is going to say is that God, who had all riches, humbled himself and became a man. And not a man that was rich here in this world, but a man that was poor in this world and experienced poverty and need. Talk about mourning? Who has the power to make everything the way that they want it and yet willingly comes to endure the pain of somebody else. If you had the power to make everything go the way that you wanted it to go, would you ever cry? But the Bible is going to talk about this God who became a man 
And his life is going to be filled with this angst, with this crying, crying at the death of his friend, crying as he's getting ready to go to this city. He looks at the sin that was done in the world. He looks at the heartache of the world, and and he spends his time mourning. You talk about a humility. If you had the power to know everybody in the world that would ever do you wrong, would you ever serve any of them? The Bible is going to paint Jesus as God in the flesh who spends three and a half years investing his life into this man, Judas. And on the night before his death, what he's going to do is he's going to step down and wash his feet, do the most humiliating work to serve this very man that's going to betray him. And on and on and on with every one of these virtues and beatitudes all the way until we get up to blessed are the peacemakers and persecuted. The climax of what Jesus does The reason why the four Gospels are in your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and not like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Enoch or whoever else wrote one, the reason why these are here is because what you find in all four of these Gospels, the authors are going to spend at least a third of their Gospel talking about the crucifixion, the most humiliating and embarrassing death that a person could die. And Jesus doesn't just come to the earth to be a poor man, to humble himself by humiliating people or by serving people who he, know, who he knows will do him wrong. But what he does is he dies the most horrific, humiliating death. And on the cross, listen, he is not crying out for revenge, vindication. He is praying God, would you show these people that are killing me mercy? Would you forgive them? They don't know what they are doing. And he was already a son of God, right? He says, blessed are peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. He already had that, but he died so that people who weren't sons and daughters of God can be brought in, right? This is the picture that's being painted, and what you say is, It's so unbelievable. It's too good to be true. It has to be fiction. And what I'm saying is, no, 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 no. Fiction just gets the closest to capturing something that's otherworldly. And so Jesus is presenting this otherworldly kingdom. If you want to enjoy God's blessing, All you need is need. Matthew chapter 7. If you think that I'm making too much of a point of this, look at this. Matthew 7, 21. This nears the end of this sermon. And he says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Heaven. And then he goes on and says, look, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, do many mighty miracles in your name? Then I announced to them, I never knew you. 
depart from me, you work, you lawbreakers. And you say, John, how does that make any sense? They've done all the right things. And what he's saying is everybody that knows God would know that if you're standing in front of him, a resume is not going to be the thing that gets you in. It's those that don't know it that stand in front of God and say, all right, uh, why should you let me in? All right, well, here's what I did. The, the good outweighed the bad. So I'm not poor in spirit. I'm just poorish, right? I did good things, but I need your help. What he's saying is, no, 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 no. The only people that get in are not folks who would stand in front of God and think there's anything in their spiritual account that would count in their credit. They are those that say, no, God, listen, listen. I'm, I'm bankrupt. Yeah, yo, I, I, God, I know that I've tried to, to do good things. But there were so many good things that I did, but they were actually done for the wrong reasons. So I don't even know where I stand. God, if you're going to let me in, I just have to do what somebody hungers and thirsts does. We live in Atlanta. See, you drive by them every day. As you exit the highway, and you find people that are literally hungry and thirsty. Do they hold up a sign and say, hey, listen, if you give me this, if you meet my need, here's what I'm going to do for you. No. What they do is they say, I've got this need. Help me. I need a gift. Everybody that knows God says, God, I've got this need for righteousness. This right standing with you, my good's not going to outweigh my bad. I need a gift. And the Bible is centered around Jesus, not just giving that gift, but being that gift. So as he dies, it's this ultimate reversal of fortunes, the one that we've been trying to work for. He's the king who comes down and and is poor and experiences this death so that you and I, people that admit that all we have is need, through what he provides, we can be fulfilled. If you want to enjoy God's blessings, all you need is need. And I just want you to know, it's this vision that completely transforms the way that you and I live. If all you need is need, you cry out to God for that need and he gives it. And if you're broken down, you can stand up. And everyone that's truly blessed, or at least in this way, stands out. Here's what I mean. Look at verse 13. He goes on and says this. As I come to a close, this is going to be really quick. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city 
situated on a hill can't be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light to all those who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heavens. Volumes and volumes have been written on this, but I just want you to know this. This comes at the end of that because all it's saying is that all those that are truly blessed like this, they stand out in the world that we live in. So he brings up salt and light for a few different reasons. One, salt is perceptible. Light is perceptible. You notice when salt is present or absent. Have you eaten food from somebody that can't cook? You know, ah, there's something missing. Flavor, that's what's missing. Salt is perceptible. But back in these days, listen, salt wasn't just used for how food tastes. It was used to preserve. So what you would do is meat that would go bad if left untouched. Meat would decay. Salt was used to keep meat from decaying. Light was used to provide folks ways in the dark. What Jesus is saying, all those that are truly blessed, who know that all they need is need, it changes the way that they live because they do not spend their lives looking down on anybody that has need because they know that, no, no, that's what gave them access. So there's not a sense of condescension. There's not even a sense of a savior complex because they know I didn't save myself by following my own advice. My life was completely transformed because I was broken down because I followed my own advice, but I met Jesus. And so what he's saying is, no, no. God has left Christians in this world in order to slow down the decay of the world, to preserve this world, to be a benefit where we are. Have you ever bought meat from a grocery store or milk and you forgot to put it in the fridge and you left it in your trunk? You find that what smelled right at some time is only going to get worse unless... Something is there to preserve it and make it better. The point that he makes here at the end is that it's not just salt, it's not just light, but we're the salt of the earth, we're the light of the the world. That the calling that God has on us is that he's put us here to make things better. That as we see needs there, what we say is, The greatest need that I have has already been taken care of. So I want to live my life proclaiming and demonstrating that truth so that people will really get it. So we don't just tweet about the crisis that takes place in Sudan. Do you know what Christians do or or have done? They've saved up their money and they've gone there. Or they've saved up their money to people that are going to go there to serve because what they say is money's not my treasure. It's not the source of my security. It's a tool that I have to make this world 
better to point people, not just to God, but to be able to find joy in this God. We don't just tweet about the border crisis and lament the fact that there are kids down at the border, separated from their families, do not have soap and or toothpaste, who are sleeping on concrete floors with aluminum blankets. We don't just tweet about it and absolve our consciences. But what we say is, spiritually, I've been in the same place, completely bankrupt. And out of the gracious intervention of God, I met him. And it is that vision that drives my behavior and gives me the grace and the power and the fuel to keep going even when I meet opposition, that the brokenness that we feel in this world is not an obstacle for our joy. It is an opportunity to show other people where that true joy is found. Christians like our God look at where things are the worst and we send and we give our best. To be quite honest, um, you know, that's why five years ago we sat down and started praying in a room about starting a church here in the West End. Not primarily for what takes place here on Sunday, uh, but because all the stuff that takes place here Monday through Saturday outside of these walls. And we felt that if we could gather a group of folks and help them really understand that they don't have to come into a place in front and act like all things are all good but that they can come into a place and be very candid with their spiritual, emotional, physical needs. And they can be surrounded by a group of people that don't just say, I'll pray for you, but people that have been so acquainted with God meeting their own needs that they would give up of their houses. They'd give of their time. They'd give of their money. They would sell their houses in a community like this one where it's just starting to come up and use the money that they make not for themselves but to reinvest into a broken community two and a half miles north of here and find themselves upside down on the house that they have. Not because they want to gain anything but because they want to give. That's different. That stands out. That's attractive. That's our goal. Is that the type of life that you want to live? Where you are so unconcerned with yourself, freed from the self-consciousness that weighs you down, that you are free to spend your life for a purpose that will outlive yours? 
All you need is need. Are you ready to admit the desperate need that you have today? Are you going to trust the promises of God? Or are you going to continue to trust maybe there's some other way for you to reverse the burdens that you have in your life? Heavenly Father, um, I ask that you would give us the grace today just to be honest with where we are, that we would be reminded that um, the needs that we have, the fact that we don't line up to the, not just your standards, but the fact that we don't line up to the standards that we even set for ourselves would you remind us that it's, it's not those behaviors that disqualify us from experiencing your grace, but you've provided your grace because you knew exactly where we'd be. People that are utterly poor or spiritually bankrupt when it comes to being accepted in your sight. Father, do you help us to experience the joy that comes from not pretending that we're something that we're not, but by embracing what it is that we are. We are people that are in desperate need of your grace. We thank you that you've provided it through your son who lived the life that we couldn't live, who died in our place. I pray that you would grip us with a sense of the truthfulness of this good message. And out of that vision, our lives would change. Be with us. Give us grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray.